Radio Mano Papachango. So I got a pretty rough email uh, from a listener this week, rough in the sense that he's going through a hard time. Um, uh, his, uh, my understanding is his dog died and uh, his girlfriend got pregnant or someone got pregnant. Um, and he wrote to me and said, uh, among other things, he said, um, you know, how do we cope? He, he was asking, how do we cope with unexpected and unplanned situations and how do we reconcile our plans with events that no one can anticipate that can change the course of a person's life um yeah i don't know why people are asking me these profound questions do i do i come across as someone who's got profound answers i don't know i mean what i what i said to him was i'm working on trying to figure out these issues as well as anyone else i think that's sort of the project of life is to figure this shit out and sometimes i think it's so fucking tragic that we die because it seems like the way it's set up if you're lucky enough to live a long life you're bound to have this feeling of like damn i'm just figuring out how this shit works and it's almost over you know i mean by the time i figured out how to deal with women in a way that didn't make me and or them crazy I was kind of like not that interested anymore in a way. I mean, I'm still interested in women. I love women. Women are great. But I mean, you know, interested in that sort of urgent, desperate hunters, <laughs> predatory, uh, testosterone-poisoned way of youth. Uh, and, and, of course, those things may be definitely related, right? Maybe I couldn't figure it out until I didn't care so damn much. And the caring was what clouded my judgment. Anyway, what I what I said to him was that the closest I've come to any sort of wise response to these things is uh, to remember to hold on to a sense of humility um, when shit comes down. Uh, I often think about times I've been robbed. Um, I don't know how many times I've been robbed in my life. Not a lot, a handful. Um, but at least two of those times have been, in retrospect, wonderful. They didn't feel wonderful at the time, but in retrospect, they were fucking wonderful. The first example I'm thinking of was when I was on a train in India going from New Delhi to Varanasi. I was on the night train, and uh, I had a second or third class you know, caught one of these fold down bed things. And, um, there were six in the, in the area, the, the, whatever it's called, the, you know, little room with six bunks. And I was on the top bunk and I had my sleeping bag. Uh, I had my thermarest air mattress, which I traveled everywhere with and my backpack. And I had my legs, I had the backpack on the bunk and my legs up over the backpack which seemed pretty good. I wouldn't be able to roll over at night, but, you know, it was a pretty good setup. And there was an Indian guy down there 
staring at me, hundreds of Indian guys staring at me, as always. And uh, this one guy seemed very friendly, smiled at me, came over, and he said, wouldn't you be more comfortable with that, uh, with your bag under the bottom bunk? And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe this guy's trying to help me out. I guess that's how they do it here. And I looked down, I saw other people had their bags under the bottom bunk on the floor. And it seemed um, there was a there was a chain system, so I could lock my my backpack to the chain. Nobody could take my bag, and and it was the zipper was locked, so it seemed pretty secure. So I said, okay, thank you. And so I I took his advice and put the backpack down there and locked it to the chain, and you know it was locked closed. And I went to sleep. Next day, got up. Everybody, you know, got up. We were pulling into Varanasi, and I grabbed my backpack, and it's fucking almost empty. And I looked under, and what had happened was that uh, in the wall between the the little bunk rooms on the train, the wall is solid. It runs down the wall, the the side, you know, from one bunk to the next. But then from the bottom bunk to the floor, it's just metal bars. There's no wall there. So this asshole had had got me to put my backpack down there, and then at night he went into the other the the adjoining chamber. And crawled under the bottom bunk there with a flashlight and a knife, sliced open my backpack, and went through it at his leisure, taking out whatever he wanted. So he took this expensive water filtration system I had. He stole some binoculars and some, I don't remember what the fuck else I had in there, some hiking boots and socks and uh, some jeans and uh, a whole bunch of shit. That I was carrying around that probably weighed about 40 fucking pounds and I didn't need it at all in India. Who needs a pair of heavy jeans and hiking boots and, uh, you know, a water filtration system? I wasn't camping. I wasn't trekking through the Himalayas. I was cruising around on buses and rickshaws and trains. And there was plenty of bottled water everywhere I went. And it was too goddamn hot and humid to wear jeans. So, But I was just carrying the stuff around because I had it. And, you know, when you have it, you don't want to give it up. Ignorant son of a bitch that I was. And am. Uh, so that guy stole all my shit. And then I couldn't even fix the backpack because he had sliced it along the zipper. And there was no way to just, like, sew it back together it was completely fucked so my favorite north face backpack i ended up leaving it in a garbage bin somewhere and i bought a uh, this you know five dollar shoulder bag that would hold my shorts uh my you know whatever i had with me whatever i still had which was not much was probably weighed about 10 or 15 pounds now as opposed to 40 or 50 and I thought I would just use that until I got to Nepal and then I'd buy a, another backpack and load up again. But after a couple of weeks in Varanasi and on my way to Nepal, I realized like I don't really need anything else. And it was a giant pain in the ass carrying that big old backpack around everywhere. And now I've got this little shoulder bag. It's light. I can flip it up overhead. I can do whatever I want. It. Nobody's looking to steal it because it looks like there's nothing in it because there really isn't anything in it. And I still had my money belt with my passport and money and shit that I had, you know, you've probably heard me tell the story about leaving that in Delhi for a while. But anyway, I had that for my essentials. 
and everything else fit in this little shoulder bag. Fantastic. Thank you, thief. And the other example I was thinking of uh, was my first night in Barcelona. I was on my way to Sevilla. I don't know if I've told this whole story. I, I won't tell it now, but I was on my way to Sevilla. I was going to live in Sevilla for a while, and I stopped in Barcelona just to check it out for a few nights. First night I'm there, I'm on the Ramblas, and, and the only thing I knew about Barcelona was that there was a big statue of Christopher Columbus at the base of the Ramblas. It's all I knew, standing there pointing toward America, apparently. And I'm sitting there in the Ramblas, just watching life go by, absorbing Barcelona in 1989, November of 1989. And some guy taps me on the shoulder and says, uh, hey, do you know, is, is there a statue of Christopher Columbus around here somewhere? And I was like, fuck, yeah, it's the only thing. It's straight, it's down there. And I'm, you know, show him to my left. It's down at the base there. Great. Oh, okay, thanks. And he wanders off. And I look and my fucking bag is gone that I had sitting next to me on the bench to my right. So he distracted me. Someone else lifted the bag. Now, that really bummed me out because that had my passport, that had some money, that had a camera, and most heartbreakingly, that had a journal that I had been writing in for a couple of years at that point. That was the journal that I was writing in when I was in Guatemala, when the, scorp when the scorpion stung me and all that shit went down. I, I had all through Mexico on that trip. So uh, there was that really bummed me out. And that led to another whole shit storm because I knew that these skinheads had stolen it and I tried to negotiate with them and that didn't go very well. And then these Marines showed up, but that's another story. My point is... Uh, I ended up hanging out in Barcelona waiting for a new passport. And while I was waiting, I, I realized I had a phone number of a guy that I had met in Mexico a couple of years before um, on this, the lost cathedral at the, at the bottom of the Barranca del Cobre, the Copper Canyon. If you've read Born to Run, uh, you, you read about the Tarahumara Indians and the Copper Canyon. So I was there and I, and bizarre story. I was wandering back through the desert and there's this, 16th century or 15th century um, Spanish cathedral that they had built in the middle of fucking nowhere. And, and now everything's gone. It's like a few Indians living in huts and the ruins of this cathedral. And I found my way up onto the roof of the thing. And there was this guy who um, became one of my best friends later, Marcos Beascoa, who um, became an important part of my life, actually. Uh, but I didn't know it then. We chatted for a while. He gave me a phone number in Barcelona and said, if you're ever in Barcelona, call. This is my sister's number. If I'm in, in Spain, you know, we can get together. So I thought, well, what the fuck? I'm stuck in Barcelona. I might as well, you know, call this guy. I did. He became a great friend and showed me all around Barcelona, introduced me to all his friends, showed me his favorite places to hang out. Got me a place to stay because he had a friend who had a spare room. Then someone offered me a job. And then I started meeting some women. And, and I thought, well, maybe I'll hang out here for the winter before I go to Sevilla. That was 1989. I was still there 20 years later. What's my point? My point is to be humble in the face of tragedy because you never know if it's really tragedy. You never know how things are going to turn out. I know this sounds fucking hackneyed and cliched, but what are you going to do? Uh, 
you know, as I said, I say in the email, what I'm trying to say is that what looks tragic now can end up looking very different down the line. Um, and that's all I got, really. That's all there is. That's all I've learned in 53 years. So if you write me looking for advice, that's what you're going to get. Okay, what else is going on? Uh, on Reddit, I think I've told you guys about the Reddit community a few times. People who listen to the podcast, comment, conversations going on there. If you use Reddit, just go to uh, do a search on Tangentially Speaking, all one word, and you'll find the community there. Uh, someone whose online screen name is Drug Sex Food says he wants to hear my thoughts on death. <clears throat> he or she could be a she. Um, my thoughts on death. I Here's what I've come to over the years. Again, you know, I don't at all claim to be any sort of profound guru, but you're asking, I'll tell you. I'm talking into a microphone, microphone I might as well, you know, opine. Uh, my thoughts on death are that it is probably, the best way I can envision it is like a raindrop hitting the ocean. So it's both an ending, the raindrop is no more, and a returning, a merging with a field of substance of which the raindrop was made. And it's cyclical. And, and you know, I know that there are reasons, emotional, psychological reasons that I would want to believe this, of course. I try to always be conscious of the psychological urges leading, you know, pushing me toward various conclusions. But, you know, I... I think pretty objectively you can look at existence and say the circle is the predominant shape. It's cycles, especially when we're talking about life, but even not life, even inanimate objects um, are subject to cycles. And um, I think that certainly when we talk about life, circles are where it's at, you know. Things come and go, uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, water vaporizes, comes up, forms clouds, joins into droplets, falls from the sky, lands on the ocean, and starts all over again. I think that's just the way it is. And so I don't necessarily think that this is my fear of death that's leading me to this conclusion so much as my observation of the nature of of uh of organic activity that it's cyclical and so i see no reason to think that we're exempt from that in fact you know as usual i i end up flipping the the agenda around in the premise and and i feel like we live in a very strange society that is dedicated and worships the linear we believe in progress we believe that things are always getting better that we're moving forward towards some unimaginable future of of leisure and jetpacks and plenty of food and the, the fucking oculus rift where we get to have sex with uh, you know, whoever the hell turns us on in some weird disembodied way, you know, some people buy that shit. I mean, my good friend Duncan is pretty um, plugged into that way of looking at things. Um, I don't. I, I don't see any evidence whatsoever for progress. 
And uh, so I, I think that if anything, we're moving further and further away from a world of uh, plentitude and leisure and lots of, you know, juicy, sexy, wonderful opportunities and community and lots of happy kids running around. I mean, if anything, I'm a utopian of the of the past, the distant past, mind you, not a couple hundred years ago. But anyway, that's my feeling about death. Uh, what's your name? Drug, sex, food. That it's like a raindrop landing on the ocean. I've uh, recorded a couple conversations with vets. I'm still reaching out to some other people to set up some more. Uh, I've done two on Skype, and I hope to be doing one with a guy, a local guy here who's in uh, a, f- a former Marine. He was in the Marines. He was at the Battle of Fallujah, I think he said. Uh, it sounds like he did a lot of uh, serious, um, difficult time in Iraq. And uh, now he's working on uh, an organic farm in Portland run by some lesbians. So it's been quite a journey for him. And um, I'm hoping he's going to invite me out to the lesbian farm and we'll talk out there and I'll be bringing that to you soon. Uh, the two guys I've already spoken to on Skype were fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that as well. Um, they're releasing that. And speaking of locals, I'm always talking about, you know, hey, you people in South Korea and Dubai and whatever, it's so cool that you're downloading this podcast and listening to it. But, you know, there are a lot of people in Southeast Portland who seem to be listening to this podcast. I I don't go out a lot. I spend most of my life sitting in this fucking office where I am right now uh, doing stuff like this and trying to get this book done. But when I do go out, I seem to run into people who know me all the time. Which is cool because they not only listen to the podcast, they know what I look like enough to stop me on the street and shake my hand. And um, that's really nice. So uh, I guess there there must be a lot of people in Portland listening to this. So thank you, people in Portland. And it's I ran into a guy in the park a couple blocks from this apartment uh, wearing a civilized to death hoodie the other day. That was pretty cool. I thought I was hallucinating there for a while. So thanks to everybody, local and far away, for listening to the podcast, telling your friends and whatnot, supporting it on Fund What You Love, making a donation at chrisryanphd.com, using the portal at chrisryanphd.com to get your Amazon booty, uh, and uh, what else? You know, whatever. You've heard me say it all before. Last thing I want to say before we get to this week's guest, who's a fascinating person, is... Um, that I wrote three blogs this week for Psychology Today. I've got a, a new blog on Psychology Today called Civilized to Death. I had one, or I have one called Sex at Dawn that's been up for years and millions of hits and all that. Um, but at Psychology Today, in order to get paid for the page views on stuff you've already put up, you need to do three blogs every three months. <clears throat> so, you know, in keeping with my normal style, I usually let it go until the three months are almost over, and then I blast out three quick blogs, and then I you know, delay for another three months. So I did three blogs this week. The last one was about, which was inspired by this Donald Trump presidential announcement, <clears throat> which was bizarre in so many different ways, but I found particularly bizarre the choice of music, which was Neil Young's Keep On Rockin' in the Free World. Um, now, there's a tradition of Republicans being complete dumbasses when it comes to choosing their campaign music. 
um, or just talking about music in general. I mean, Paul fucking Ryan said that Rage Against the Machine was one of his favorite bands. Now, Paul Ryan is the fucking machine they're raging against, man. How can he not see that? And Ronald Reagan, uh, famously, they used uh, Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, at a campaign event in New Jersey back in 1984. Uh, if you listen to the words to that song, it's about how it's about a Vietnam vet coming back after losing friends in Vietnam, coming back, uh, can't get a job. The Veterans Administration won't help him. He's completely fucked. That's what Born in the USA is about. But when it comes to bloody idiocy or just callous indifference, Trump's choice of keep on rocking in the free world has to be the, the this has got to be the record. I can't imagine anything more egregious than this. If you don't know the song, check it out. I'm sure you've heard the the chorus. It's fantastic. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll, I'll at least have that much mercy on you. But, um, you know, the lyrics are, there's colors in the street, red, white, and blue. People shuffle in their feet. People sleeping in their shoes. Okay? Who sleeps in their shoes? The fucking homeless. But there's a warning sign on the road ahead. There's a lot of people saying we'd be better off dead. Don't feel like Satan, but I am to them. So now he's talking about Christian fundamentalists, right, who are welcoming the apocalypse and welcoming war in the Middle East because it's going to bring the second coming of Jesus and save us all. So I try to forget any way I can. Keep on rocking in the free world. Yeah. Keep on rocking in the free world. And then... The next one is even, you can't imagine, the next verse is even darker than that. It's, it can't get darker. I see a woman in the night with a baby in her hand under an old street light near a garbage can. Yeah, you know what's about to happen here. Now she puts the kid away and she's gone to get a hit. She hates her life and what she's done to it. There's one more kid that'll never go to school, never get to fall in love never get to be cool keep on rocking in the free world man there are tears running down his face when he sings this song this is not a celebration of the free world this is a an, an indictment of the free world this is a condemnation of the bullshit that somebody like donald trump lives and breathes every goddamn day of his life this is about a woman who put her fucking kid in a garbage can because she doesn't have enough money to have a kid and support her drug habit. So she throws the kid away and goes and buys some fucking drugs. Yeah, Trump 2016. Okay, now that I've offended all the uh, Trump supporters who listen to Tangentially Speaking, <laughs> let's get to the reason we're all here. This week's guest is is a plasma physicist, I believe. Although in listening to this conversation, I realize I keep referring to him as a particle physicist, but that's just because I'm a dumbass and don't know the difference. But I believe he is a plasma physicist. He is working on a nuclear fusion device in a small warehouse outside of Bellingham, Washington. Uh, I'm going to leave it to you to decide whether this is, you know, a crazy scheme or just so crazy it might work scheme. 
Um, in any case, someone wrote to me a couple months ago telling me about this guy and, and saying that he was the smartest person he'd ever met. And um, uh, there's a, a group of supporters who are who are financing this project and they invited me to to interview him and talk about it and honestly my response was look what the hell do i know about nuclear physics and i know that the field of cold fusion uh in any case is one that's uh, full of very contentious debates about uh you know whether people are faking results uh you know scamming you know what's going on it's it's a uh, an area in science where there's a lot of uh, heated disagreement, and I'm not qualified to know who's full of shit and who's not. Um, and so I was resistant to the idea of talking to this guy. But uh, eventually I was convinced that it was worthwhile, and I have friends in Seattle who had just moved into a new house, and I thought, all right, I'll take a drive up, see my friends, take a break from the book and um so it was a nice nice to get out on a road trip so i drove up there and uh went to meet with devlin in the lab and came away from it with absolutely no opinion as to the scientific viability of this project but with a strong opinion that devlin's not full of shit um, for what that's worth you know i i played poker every sunday for years with um a bunch of sharks in Barcelona and uh, I suck at poker because I can't remember how many hearts have already been played or whether the nine of clubs has already been on the table or not. And those are sort of the essential things you need to know about poker. Plus the fact that we were drinking beer and smoking joints didn't help my cognitive uh, capacities. But uh, the thing that I, the only way I survived and sometimes even won some money from those guys was that I have a pretty good bullshit detector. And so when someone's claiming to have a full house and I just get a hunch they don't, it, you know, eight times out of ten I'm right and I take their money. So that's what I brought to this, okay? Not, not a lot of scientific knowledge, um, but a sense that... If this guy's full of shit, I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to even, you know, share it with my audience. But I came away from it feeling this guy is definitely not full of shit. He's a very reasonable, very personable, smart, um, generous guy. And uh, I noticed that he used a lot of numbers and formulas and things, not to make it difficult to, to understand what he was talking about, but he's not afraid of other experts listening to what he's saying and exposing him, in other words. Um, uh, which is something that I was watching out for. And uh, so if there are any uh, physicists in the audience who are listening to this and you have an opinion on uh, uh, how uh, valid this guy is, I'd be happy to hear from you. But my opinion after hanging out with him was that, um, you know, apart from the science, which I'm not qualified to judge, he's, uh, he's a good guy. A serious guy. He's not ripping off his investors. He's he's doing real work, and uh, I wish him a lot of luck because hey, God knows we can use a clean source of limitless energy. Personally, I doubt that the economic interests uh, involved would allow that to to exist. Um, they'd probably you know send up a hit team to take this guy out if he got close to it. But hopefully by then he'll be on an island surrounded by bodyguards uh in any case devlin baker very interesting cat 
and uh, we talk about the the name of the company. I'm not sure if they want links up. If they do, I'll put them up at at my site, chrisryanphd.com, where you can hear all the podcasts. So thank you for listening. I know this has been kind of a long rant, so I'll shut the fuck up at this point. I'm going to play you out with a song called If You See Her by... Peter Barbie, who uh, listens to the podcast, dropped me a note. We had a beer last week, I guess it was, when he was in town visiting. And uh, I really like this song. He's another, add him to the list of extremely talented people who listen to this podcast. Very cool. Anyway, you can uh, find out more about him. Google uh, Among Savages, and his last name is spelled B-A-R-B-E-E. Among Savages is... The record this song's going to be on, if you see her, it's not released yet, but will be soon. And he's got a previous release up on iTunes if you want to get some of his stuff. If You See Her by Peter Barbie. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.
All right, I'm sitting in a, a warehouse laboratory in beautiful Bellingham, Washington. How, how far are we from the Canadian border? 25 to 30 minutes. Nothing, nothing. People smuggling paradise here. Although people don't really smuggle people across the Canadian border. Mostly just milk and gasoline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some cigarettes maybe going the other way. Uh, Bellingham, Washington. It's a beautiful day, and I'm here with Devlin Baker, who is... Uh, how do you describe yourself? Are you a nuclear physicist? I mean, that's a hell of a business card to, to lay yeah. on a chick in a bar, you know? I mean, my, my business card just says, like, research scientist or right. head scientist, something like that. Um, plasma physics primarily. Plasma physics and computational plasma physics. Plasma physics and computational plasma physics. Mm-hmm. Dig it. That's pretty cool. What, what is plasma, anyway? Uh, well, the back of the, you know, cracker box uh, answer is... Uh, um, the fourth state of matter, fully ionized gases, essentially gases that are hot and or energetic enough that the electrons and the ions um, aren't connected in molecules anymore. They're just sort of flowing together as a big soup. So it's so the other states of matter are gas, liquid, solid, mm-hmm. and then you've got plasma, mm-hmm. which only exists at extremely high temperatures. Um, the shortest answer is yes, but there's a bunch of exclusions. There's things that act like plasmas that are cold. You can make you can have a plasma where the ions are barely above room temperature, but the electrons are you know as hot as the surface of the sun. There's a lot of variability. Wow. Um, there's many surface uh, surface physics people that sort of work with um, how many uh, waves in solids act like plasmas and how electron clouds work like plasmas. So there's uh, and in fact some of the coldest things on, in the universe, um, like rubidium, cooled rubidium um, atoms in a laser trap, are technically plasmas as well. Um, mm. So. Um, so it sounds like sort of a catch-all term, and science might get to a point where it starts distinguishing between these different things that we're now calling plasma. Kind yeah. of like, like cancer, right? Like, oh, it's cancer. <laughs> well, there are 500 different types of cancer. Well, it is true that the majority of plasma research is in kind of two veins. You have thermal plasma research, which is mostly for energy production someday. Um, and yeah, uh, I, just, I always forget to remind people not to, like, tap on the table. Because you can't hear it, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, it goes through the... Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. so, um, and then um, stellar plasmas and sort of astrophysics. Um, I don't remember the exact term, but I've heard it said that it's somewhere in excess of 99% of the universe is in a plasma state. Right. Because, uh, you know, stars are plasma, and interstellar gas is usually at least partially ionized. Um, huh. So, yeah, the majority of the universe is plasma. Salt and gas are kind of rare in the universal scale. scale. Really? Yeah. And what's dark matter? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. If I knew, I'd probably have a lot <laughs> You'd more. have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's it, somehow people have, have been able to compute that there's a huge amount of dark matter. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's most of the gravity-causing yeah. matter in the universe. <laughs> but it's not measurable in any way other than the fact that it creates gravitational fields. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, the... The complete answer involves, you know, some cosmology and some stuff that's outside of my field. But um, the simple answer is that essentially the the Milky Way and other galaxies spin at a rate that if they only weighed as much as the stuff that we saw them, they should fly apart. And Uh, they don't. Right. Um, So that's how we know it's there. There's some more interesting stuff recently of, like, galaxies orbiting essentially nothing and, you know, two galaxies colliding. And due to gravitationally, we can see that their dark matter kind of kept going past the impact point. Uh, Um, So there's lots of interesting things like that. But... 
Uh, I know there's some cosmological reasons, so sort of like energy balance and number of hadrons and stuff like that. There has to be something else there, but that's kind of outside of my field. Right. Now, you mentioned hadrons. Mm -hmm. The only time I've ever heard that word before is the Large Hadron Collider. Mm -hmm. is that, that's the thing in Switzerland or yeah. France? Yeah. What is a hadron? Well, hadron in that case is just a complicated word for protons because that's basically what... Uh, that's what they're spinning that's around. That's what they're spinning around is protons. Right. Hadron's kind of a catch-all term for, you know, a certain type of subatomic particle that, you know, generally the ones inside nuclei is right. the simplest way to put that. As right. opposed to, you know, um, like leptons. Electrons are leptons, and those are usually outside of the nuclei. Right, right. Okay. So, so for people who are as ignorant as I am about this stuff, uh, and this is terrible i haven't taken a science class since 1978 probably which if we count calculus i failed um i like science though i mean i i, I like the ideas of science more than the the nitty-gritty numbers of science you know that's fair yeah uh but uh so we're talking about physics today so let's just get the basics out of way out of the way we've got a molecule which is normally composed of uh, protons and neutrons in the nucleus mm -hmm. with electrons spinning around mm -hmm. outside it, which is what gives it a charge or non-charge or whatever. Um, you, what are you doing here in this laboratory? What's the project? So the project is, to put in those terms, to sort of strip the electrons off and make the nuclei go together. Right, um, to fuse them. To fuse them, yeah. Right. Uh, nuclear fusion and or atomic fusion, the atomic moniker kind of got dropped when people started associating with atomic bombs, right. um, even though it's technically nuclear means kind of the same thing as well. Um, th I mean, this is something that many people around the world have been working on since, you know, well, for a very long time, but actively since the, since the 50s um, in order to fuse light isotopes to make heavier isotopes and release energy in the process. Um, there's a lot of approaches, um, you know, some like the ITER over in France, you know, they call them superconducting cathedrals because there's these things the size of aircraft carriers full of superconducting magnets. Um, ours is much less grand. It's the size of a large softball. Um, and we have sort of a different approach for, for uh, achieving these, the temp ion temperatures necessary. Um, and that's something called inertial electrostatic confinement. Right, which, if I understand it correctly, is that when, when and if you're able to achieve this fusion, the temperatures generated are so high that they would melt any container that you were yeah. using. So aside from some esoteric stuff, um, almost all fusion project things, you have to confine it with electromagnetic fields of some type or the other. Because any material thing, you know, we're talking tens of millions of degrees, well beyond um, what any material could handle. Uh, but the problem really isn't so much that, like, oh, this thing's going to bore through the outside of your thing and shoot a plasma jet across the parking lot. The problem is more that a plasma is really not very dense, excluding some of the um, stuff like the National Ignition Facility where they collapse stuff to extremely high density. Most fusion plasmas are less dense than the atmosphere even. They're very, you know, evanescent. Mm. Uh, evanescent, rather. Um, it's a good word. Yeah. I like that. Evanescent. <laughs> um, so... The more problem is more that their heat capacity is really low. So if it touches, you know, the side of the wall, the wall is going to heat up a few tens of hundreds of degrees, and the plasma is going to lose all of its temperature. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's not so much the problem of not boring through the side. It's that you're keeping your plasma hot. Oh, okay. Um, and if it touches anything, it drains the, the energy out mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, right? it all just kind of goes through the wall, and then you don't have anything left. So, so you create this, this electromagnetic field with generally uh, six electromagnets is the way most people do it, right? Four around the side and then two on the top. Well, in our field, um, 
in the subset of inertial electrostatic confinement uh, fusion, um, there's only a few other people working with this magnetic variation that we're working with. Uh-huh. Most, the most mainstream version of fusion is something called a tokamak, uh, which is essentially just a donut of rings. And so you end up with continuous, um, we call it a toroid, but a donut of magnetic fields that are all closed. And they just kind of make a racetrack and stuff flies around the racetrack. There's a lot of problems with that. And like the donut, it's kind of, it's inherently unstable. So you have to do a bunch of things to keep, to stabilize it. Right. Um, and also the phys- physics work out such the thing has to be huge, you know, 20 meters across. Right. Um, there's no inherent physics in the variation we're working with um, that force it to be any larger than it needs to be um, aside from essentially reaction volume. Um, so that's why ours is so small. We can learn all the same physics at a smaller scale. We don't have to build things the size of an aircraft carrier. Um, that's not to say a reactor won't be considerably larger than what we're doing, a successful power reactor. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the really the big difference on the basic level between a tokamak and what we're working with the magnetic IEC variations is um, open versus closed field lines. Um, you might remember field lines from, you know, looking at a little magnet with iron filings or Maybe you've seen them on the solar prominences on the sun where they, you know, follow magnetic field lines and come back in. Mm-hmm. Um, t- Tokamak and many other things like it, Stellarators, um, at- attempt to make all the field lines closed. Because in general, plasma tends to follow field lines. Um, so the idea is if they're all closed loops, they can't go anywhere, so they'll all stay on the field lines and everything will be great. Um, as I said, there's some stability issues with that because it has to be concave in order for that to work, and a concave magnetic surface is inherently um, magnetohydrodynamically unstable. Mm. Um, so the, uh, the, you can make fields that are everywhere convex to the plasma, which makes them inherently stable in, you know, magnetohydrodynamically. But the issue then is then you have holes in your magnetic field, and the plasma will leak out. Uh. Um, so... For many years, that th- this was researched pretty heavily until about the 80s, and then essentially the U.S. ran out of funding, and they had to pick, do we work on tokamaks or do we work on um, mirrors and cusps? And being a, you know, a government, they picked one, and the other one just kind of faded off the map. Well, it turns out that technology is still pretty viable, uh, at least in my and some other researchers' opinion, um, so we continue to work on it sort of off of government funding. Um, so open field line configurations... Um, you can overcome the losses along the field lines, and they're worth it when you don't have to worry about all these large-scale instabilities, which are what's plaguing some of the large, more main-scale um, fusion projects. Um, so it's sort of a it's a gamble. Can we make these lot? We accept having holes in our field. Can we make the losses through the holes low enough to justify it? Um, and that's essentially what the research is mm, okay and and the losses through the holes aren't dangerous that, because as you said it's more just a question of dissipating energy than yeah. burning and yeah it's not an issue of yeah of like i'm going to bowl through my hole it's an issue of if too much leaks out then i don't have anything in there right <laughs> so. right so um the the, the sort of mainstream understanding uh, you must get frustrated by this all the time because you know people have all these crazy ideas about nuclear fusion you know they the first thing they think it's gonna bore a hole into the center of the earth and explode or the create a black hole and everything gets sucked in and all um where's that come from where's that black hole stuff come from is that because people are confusing it with because fusions what happens in stars Mm -hmm. right and so when you have a star collapse you can get black holes Mm -hmm. is that where that comes from or is there some reasonable scientific uh a scenario in which the universe could crack and everybody falls into it. 
I think that there's sort of two reasons for that. One, and I hadn't thought until you mentioned it, that it is true that the only we only have two examples of fusion in the universe, and they're pretty much stars and hydrogen bombs. Mm. Um, so fusion is innately associated with that in the human psyche to those two things, just because that's the two places we know that it happens. Right. Um, the other thing is I think some confusion between um, people claiming that things like, you know, like, uh, like the Large Hadron Collider would cause black holes, and those happen at CERN, the Center for European Nuclear Research, who also does research on fusion. They also do the ITER at CERN. So there might be some crosstalk between people hearing about microscopic black holes at a particle collider who happens to uh, also do fusion work in the same laboratory, even though they're not even in the same So province. particle colliders aren't achieving fusion? Well, you can do fusion in a particle collider, but the energy guy, we, in fact, that's how we calibrate our reaction scales. We know how much fusion, you know, um, I guess the simplest way to answer that is that particle colliders, all they do is make a really energetic beam of Let's go with ions in this case. Sometimes they're electrons or positrons. Um, and they hit things, and they see what comes out. The energy, <laughs> that's really all they do. Um, At the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of billions even of sometimes. Billions. Yeah, oh, over the course God. of the project. Um, yeah. So, you know, the amount of energy required to do fusion, you know, to fuse, say, deuterium and tritium, is on the order of um, 10 kiloelectron volts, which is, you know, I think that's like about 20 million degrees um, Kelvin. Hmm. Um, and that's enough to make, you know, the two, the tritium nucleus and the deuterium nucleus stick together and then break apart into, you know, neutrons and everything um, and release energy in the process. The, uh, the Large Hadron Collider is working at tera-electron volts. So that's, you know, like six orders of magnitude higher. Now, I'm sorry, nine. Um, and that's essentially, you hit them so hard together, the protons, the neutrons don't just stick together. The stuff inside the protons and neutrons break apart. And then the quarks and everything flip around, and then even more stuff comes out. So you can turn a particle uh, collider way down and do fusion experiments and figure out, like, exactly at what rate fusion things happen at a given energy. And that's how we calibrate a lot of stuff. But the real thing is to turn them all the way up and see, like, not what, just not what's inside a, you know, nucleus, what's inside a proton. And since, because E equals MC square, you put any two things together with enough energy, you can create anything with equivalent mass out of that energy. You know, things can just pop into being, and that's how things like the Higgs get, um, get searched for. You just put enough energy that essentially it's like paying your bank. You know, you put in enough energy, and you're like, oh, you can afford a Higgs, and the Higgs pops out. You know, that's kind of how, how nature works. It'll create anything that the energy allows it to. Right. So you smash it together hard enough, you get the tiny, tiny particles, tiny pieces. Mm-hmm. But but what what's strange to me is that they talk about this as discovering, uh, you know, new uh, building blocks of mm-hmm. matter and things like that. But it's not a building block if you smash something and you pick up a piece of it and you say, "Look, I discovered a new particle." Mm-hmm. Well, is it really a particle, or is it just a piece of something that you smashed? I mean, do these things exist in nature? Well, that's a really good question because, um, for example, like quarks, we had no example. Um, of seeing one free, and we still don't because they don't exist free. We've only seen evidence of them. Right. Um, but we know that, you know, for example, all like neutrons and protons are made of three quarks together. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Always three. Always three for neutrons and protons. And then there's uh-huh. you know, there's things made out of two, you know, uh, two quarks, and there's things made out of a quark and an anti-quark. Um, so until we understood that quarks existed, we didn't have a good understanding of how, say, a proton and neutron interacted with each other. Right. Because as far as we knew, they were just point particles. 
Um, well, you got me there. If, if it's always three quarks, then I think there's a strong argument to say that a quark is a thing mm-hmm. other than just a, you know, a shard of a proton or a mm-hmm. neutron. Th- then that makes sense. Okay. But you do raise the good point that, um, particularly with things like supersymmetry, there is this idea that you know, as you get more energy, you can just create heavier and heavier particles. And the question is, is there an end to that? Or is everything just essentially a resonance of a lower particle? Because, mm. you know, like muons, many people would say are just a heavy electron. In a lot of ways, they are. So the question is, you put even, you know, if you put a, you know, more to the magnitude, more energy, and do you just get like a really, really heavy electron? Right. And is that really different, or are you just creating that? Um, what do we mean by heavy? Um, they're mass. mass. So, you know, okay. electrons, yeah, one five thousandths of a, of a proton, and a muon's many times that. Is it, is it actually one five thousandth? Or one five hundredth, approximately. Uh, um, one five hundredth, approximately. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. that, I mean, see, that, that's where I, I feel like there's an argument to be made that, that these things exist in and of themselves. When you've got these exact... Yeah. Um, synchrony, synchronicities or, or patterns like the three quarks, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so that's that's why I'm not trying to pin you down on, you know. Yeah, I'm not, a, partic- I'm not a particle physicist. So. Right, right. Yeah. Um, mesons, you mentioned, oh, muons. Muons, yeah. Somewhere in my distant memory, there's the word mu-meson. Is that physics or is that yeah, a mu-meson, type of cow? You know, I must admit that I'm not a... <laughs> okay. Not a particle guy, but right. I am familiar with. The, but that is a yeah. physics term. All right, I, I didn't know if I was making that up or yeah. not. Um, okay, so now what? What fusion is trying to do? Or, or, correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is, as you've just explained, but to simplify it a little bit, you're fusing two um, uh, atoms or molecules. Atoms. Atoms. Well, I mean, th- I prefer the term ion because it's ah. clear. You know, an ion is just the nuclei; it doesn't have any electrons on it. Anymore. Okay, you've stripped the electrons, mm-hmm. so you're fusing these two particles, and in the process of fusing them, energy is released. Mm-hmm. And the reason that this, well, one of the reasons that this is at least theoretically uh, preferable to fission, where you're splitting uh, uh, a particle and energy is released, is that there's no possibility for runaway reaction. Yeah. Um, And I think that's interesting because that's not like a fundamental physics aspect of it. The fundamental physics aspect that's interesting about it is that you're starting with light things and you end up with other light things as far as mass of the atoms, the result. Part of the reason that fission is dangerous is, you know, you fuse uranium and you end up with, you know, transuranic elements. You end up with, you know, like cesium and strontium and all these things. Right, which are radioactive for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you do fusion, you usually end up with like helium, hydrogen, you know. In some weird cases, you get like beryllium, but, you know, Mm. nothing... Um, all these light elements. And some, Are there other ways to make helium? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole whole chain of um, stuff like the CNO cycle in stars. Um, I mean, helium can decay down. In fact, there's... So helium's what's called an alpha particle. Um, and a huge number of things spit out helium nuclei as part of their breakdown um, uh, In Earth's atmosphere or only interstellar? Oh, yeah. They, actually, yeah, there's, there's things that do it. You can buy a little... Um, Alpha particle sources. They're just a radioactive element that reduces, replaces, releases uh, alpha particles. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Because I remember hearing somewhere uh, that there was a limited amount of helium in the world, and it couldn't be replaced, and we were wasting it all in party balloons. Well, it is true that, so the helium on Earth primarily comes from radioactive decay deep in the Earth. Ah. And it comes out of, you know, um, volcano vents and all that and sort of stuff. it bubbles up. Yeah. That's where oh. the majority of it comes. And we actually, most of the... I th- 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not a much of a miner, but my understanding is that the majority of helium comes off of um, like gas shafts, like they actually find it trapped deep in the earth. So you get a bunch of coal miners coming up talking funny. <laughs> I've never heard of that, but that's a possibility, <laughs> I suspect. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah. the thing about helium is that it's light, and it's, it's, it's light enough. Um, in fact, this is one of those things that you go through in like first-year astronomy. You calculate like, how long a, a gas molecule of a given temperature can be confined by the gravity of a planet. And when you do that for helium and you do that for Earth, it doesn't get confined for particularly long. So in any sort of, you know, time scale more than a few years, the helium all just kind of diffuses off into space. Uh So we only have as much helium as there are radioactive decaying elements in the Earth that produce helium. Past that, we do run out of helium. Right. So we run out of everything. Yeah. You know, what's, yeah. All right. I interrupted you with my silly helium. Uh, actually, the reason I was reading about helium, strangely enough, now here, this is why this is called tangentially speaking, I was reading about the best ways to, um, to kill yourself. And uh, helium turns out to be a gas that you can suffocate yourself with that doesn't cause uh, oxygen panic. So you don't, you know, I was reading, there's a book published in Australia, um, like a guide to euthanasia for people who are terminally ill and whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I can't remember what it's called right now. Graceful Exit, maybe. Uh, that could be what it's called. Um, but the PDF is available online. And uh, they were talking about this system of using helium gas and uh, how it's very peaceful because you your body suffocates, but you don't feel it. Mm. So that you don't have that crazy feeling. But it does create this really bizarre sort of, you know, you know, these are my last words. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a darkly comic kind of scene. Uh, anyway, that has nothing to do with nuclear fusion, ladies and gentlemen. So we're back to okay. So nuclear fusion. Now, uh, the what what are the advantages? You're you're dedicating your life, or at least the first part of it here, to this process. Is it just intellectual interest, or is there something about producing energy in this way that excites you uh, in a transcendental way? Well, so people, you know, actually, you raise a good point. It is sort of a intellectually interesting, simply because. There's really only a few forms of energy in the universe that we can actually see that are of any large scale, and it's gravity, and that's the, you know sticking everything together. Right. And then there's fusion. That's what makes all the stars shine. Um, so it seems, you know, if you just want, want it, it's very beautiful in a way to get your energy from the same place the rest of the universe gets it. Um, that said, practically, um, and, and specifically, we work on aneutronic fusion versus just deuterium-deuterium fusion. I can clarify that later. Um, but aneutronic fusion has the huge advantage in that it's sort of like it's the sci-fi power source. Mm. It's it's almost no waste. It's clean. It's safe. I mean, I wrote all the uh, did all those cal- danger calculations for how dangerous a reactor would like this would be, and if you're running a port- proton boron 11 one, the amount of radio- radioactive L- um, carbon 12 that this thing would produce or having it at any given time in order to kill a person for, this is for a 300 megawatt reactor, they would have to breathe in all of the carbon 12 that the reactor has in it. They'd have to basically like, you know, put their mouth on the hole and suck it all Snort it. Yeah. And that's the only way you could really, um, you know, kill yourself with the radioactive elements left over this thing. That said, you wouldn't want to be in the room with the thing running because it does produce a lot of other radio, you know, radiation while it's on. But so this would be safe even if it were being run by Homer Simpson. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, in fact, the biggest danger with Homer Simpson, he would just probably not be able to get it to turn on. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, um, 
that's really sort of the advantage is that it is, it, it, I, I strongly feel if you're going to work for something, you might as well work for like the pie in the sky way off in the middle. I mean, there's, there's millions of people in this world working for practical near-term solutions for things that are, you know, a year away or six months away. Mm. Um, you need a certain population to be looking 10 years away, or maybe, maybe this won't happen for a hundred or a thousand years, but you need people to be, you know, looking way off in the distance um, just because history shows that sometimes those people get lucky and it's way soon, way, way closer than we think it is. Right. And then we just make a huge leap forward. So on the ship of humanity, you're the guy up in the crow's nest, you know, looking for land while the rest of us are running around pulling ropes and, and doing our daily. And some, well, I think the guy on the crow's nest probably has more objective use than I necessarily feel like I have. Um, <laughs> but, hey, land ho, man. That's, yeah. that's important. Um, yeah, it's more like land ho when nobody else believes that there's land out there at all. Right. You know. Um, right. So. So if following, you know, continuing down this line, you've got uh, – I certainly see how fusion is preferable to fission uh, in terms of nuclear power generation. But in, in what sense – I mean, you know, we're talking about helium bubbling up from the core of the Earth. The core of the Earth is, I don't know how hot, but it's hot as hell, right? Um, We've got geothermal energy. We've got wave-produced energy. We've got wind-produced energy. We've got all, you know, solar energy. We've got so many um, different sources of energy that are sort of right here at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. Um, what is it that makes you want to devote your talents to fusion as opposed to, um, you know, geothermal or wind or whatever? Is it is it this? Is it the romance of it being so sort of elemental in the universe? Is that what attracts you to it? Well, to be entirely honest, you know, I got into I got into plasma physics because from a very young age. I was, in, you know, as a space kid, I watched Star Trek. You know, oh, I okay. wanted a spaceship, right. and, and Scotty had that fusion. Yeah, yeah. A fusion reactor is by far the best way to actually get anywhere farther than you know the moon. Ah, uh, okay. So that's what it is. It's portable. Yeah, it's portable. And you know, actually, to answer your question about um, like sort of environmental energy, um, I do believe that the vast majority of our energy needs can be provided by solar, thermal, wind, all these things. Um, there's a question of footprint and usability. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because you, you, geothermal, that stuff comes and goes. It's not available everywhere. Same thing with wind. It's all about the batteries. Yeah, so Pucks. battery technology makes it changes this stuff a lot yeah. um, as far as sustainable energy. Our man Elon's working on it. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, yeah. Do you have a poster of Elon Musk in your, over your bed or anything? Uh, no, I don't, but uh, <laughs> definitely. Uh, He's got to be a god for guys like you. Yeah. No, he's done a lot. Um, and fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is just, you know, he's managed to maintain control of his company on a corporate level. A lot of large corporations aren't agile like that because they don't have, you know, a small group or a single sort of person dictating progress. And he's managed not to lose his shit entirely mm-hmm. so far. I mean, yeah. he might end up Howard Hughes, you know, long fingernails <laughs> on, a, on an island somewhere. But so far, he seems to be pretty... Uh, you know, normal guy as far as you can be normal. Yeah. Well, he does a good job of, you can tell that I think he shares a lot with me and that he really wants to go to Mars like a lot. You can tell that when you hear mm-hmm. interviews with him, yeah. but he, he, he can tell he tones it down for the press so that people don't realize. Yeah. He knows how to talk to normal people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In their language. Yeah. I, I shook his hand. That's as close as I've been to Mars. Uh, it's a lot closer than a lot of people get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking about how, uh, as a kid, you were interested in interstellar travel and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So that's the that's the application of fusion that none of these other things can can really equal. Yeah. Um, and that said, you know, I think that so long term, fifty hundred years, fusion works. I think that the majority of electrical power will be done by orbital. Um, Orbital solar systems. Uh, satellites uh, that absorb solar power and beam it down to Earth. Mm-hmm, yeah. right. uh, if launch costs, costs are low enough. Um, Which Elon's going to. Yeah. yeah. Well, even, even his system isn't going to be low enough. You need to get another order of magnitude to make that practical. But the reusable yeah, rockets. We'll is, start to get there. Yeah. yeah. Um, you really need something sort of. You need like a launch loop or a space elevator or something like mm. that to really make that stuff uh, practical. It's not to say that I'm sure he's not thinking about that. The Hyperloop technology seems kind of close to sort of... Which is the mass transit thing that he's doing in California, mm-hmm. but you think that's applicable to uh, Yeah, there, to there's definitely... If you can have an evacuated tube and just kind of point it up a mountain right. to Mach 20 or so and then pop out the end of the tube, you right. know, that's the kind of 100 to 200 year kind of thing that makes space launch you know as cheap as air travel today. What's this? I, I, I remember reading somewhere about a, a ladder. is like a, a chain mm-hmm. that that uh, is extended up through the atmosphere and things can just sort of crawl up it? Yeah, there's a lot of variations of that. Um, I mean, there's ones that spin and come down into the earth and you kind of hook onto it and then fly back up. And yeah. there's ones that are stationary and actually attached to the ground. Right. And there's ones that are way up just up in the upper atmosphere. But essentially you just have an asteroid as a counterweight and it orbits right. in a place that it stays stationary. Yeah. You, you ever read much uh, Buckminster Fuller? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's a, he was an amazing guy. Definitely, yeah. I read something recently about him that when he was a kid, he had bad eyesight. And I guess he was from a pretty poor family and they couldn't afford eyeglasses. Mm-hmm. And he didn't get eyeglasses till he was seven or eight years old. And until he got eyeglasses, he refused to believe that the world wasn't fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you a lot about human perception. <laughs> yeah, and him, particularly. Yeah. You know, it's like either I... I demonstrate this one way or another to myself or I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe anything you say that I can't demonstrate. So mm-hmm. it, it, he was so open-minded. And mm-hmm. uh, Am I right that he was the first person to, um, to, uh, I, to understand that geosynchronous or- orbit would work? Do you know that? Um, I don't recall. I think he theorized that, that he understood it would work, and other people went ahead and did the mm-hmm. you know, science and the launching and all that after World War it's II. A, it's interesting because that's one of those things that mathematically is very easy to figure out, like in retrospect. It's, right. It's really only it's a small little equation. It's a, right? Yeah, it's pretty easy, right? Yeah. It's your velocity, and your, so something's always falling and never moving because its speed mm-hmm. is equal to the rate at which it would... Yeah, all you've got to do is yeah. match your sort of angular velocity with the angular velocity of the rotation of the Earth. That's right. All you got to do it's right but you're right i mean there this is the same time you have to realize that people didn't believe robert goddard that a rocket could work outside of the atmosphere because they didn't understand that they yeah. always thought it had to push against something in order to work right so in a vacuum you're not pushing against anything how's it going to work yeah that was the going theory right. at the time and but what's phys- physics says for every action there's an opposite uh, reaction mm-hmm. even in a vacuum yeah i mean the, the rocket effect in the first order works because it puts mass behind it it's got to go forward. The same reason. And what's what's the mass? Oh, it's the the exhaust. The exhaust. So there's solids in the exhaust. Oh no, it, it's gas. Ah. some plasma. Actually. Ah, okay, but, right. So it's just expelling such a huge amount of gas and and mm-hmm. plasma that that's throwing mm-hmm. off. It's like throwing. Yeah, m- it's literally just weight. sitting on yeah. a on a on a skateboard and throwing basketballs. That's how it works. Right. You know, so. 
right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. What the hell were we talking about before I derailed us with Buckminster <laughs> Fuller? Uh, oh, we were talking about inter- interstellar travel and uh, uh, the geosynchronous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were saying that you think that the Earth is going to be powered with these um, satellite-based solar mm-hmm. collectors. Yeah. And then how, how how do you foresee the energy being conducted down to Earth? Through laser? Or? Uh, microwave, well, maser, so coherent microwaves. Uh, um, and so, you know, right now, all the stuff has to do it being uh, thermal. Essentially, it just hits something, and that thing heats up and right. creates energy. Um, there's some stuff with essentially just packing it up in an antenna and, you know, converting it just like you would, you know, um, a radio signal back at energy right. directly. Right. Um, but, you know, Room temperature superconductors would really help with that, something we don't have yet. Um, so there's a lot of – this is one of those down the line of everything goes well. And for all I know, and this is the lovely thing about science, there could be an entire energy source that I'm not aware of um, that somebody could be working on somewhere, um, you know, dark energy power or something. I don't know. Um, so that's the fascinating thing about science. Yeah. Yeah. So with, with fusion, you've got this, uh, this reaction happening suspended in – space Mm -hmm. because of the electromagnetic fields you create Mm -hmm. it's creating very high temperatures uh at least in theory it's creating more energy than you're putting in to create these electromagnetic fields and and Mm -hmm. uh, induce this reaction which already is a pretty high amount of energy right Mm -hmm. how is the energy being conducted out of that space into turning on lights or running a refrigerator. Yeah, so that's that's actually one of the main things that's interesting about, as I mentioned, a-neutronic ver- fusion versus two-dimensional neutronic fusion. So the easiest things to fuse, as I mentioned offhand, is deuterium and tritium, which are both isotopes of hydrogen. So hydrogen with one neutron and hydrogen with two neutrons. And that's why they say that the, the fuel for this is essentially ocean water, because you yeah. can make, make those elements out of ocean water. Mm-hmm. Right? And the, uh, except there's a big asterisk there. Um, that I think a lot of people over is that tritium decays very quickly. Um, I think, you know, in the order of a decade on mm. that. And uh, deuterium stable, and some small percentage, like 0.2% of ocean water, is deuterium. So you can just pull out deuterium all day. But tritium, pretty much just get it from radioactive decay. Mm. Um, so a successful deuterium tritium reactor has to create its own tritium. Uh, and that's the energy balance of that works. Essentially, neutrons come off the reaction and then they create, they hit, you know, Usually it's lithium, um, and that breeds tritium, and then you use the tritium for fuel. Um, but that hasn't really been demonstrated yet, so that's sort of a big asterisk, yeah. I still I think. Right. Um, whereas um, we're working on aneutronic fusion cycles, which use – what we're really interested in is uh, what's called proton-boron fusion, where you use pro- a proton, a hydrogen nuclei, and a boron nuclei, uh, boron-11, um, five protons, six neutrons, and – those collide, form into a compound nucleus, and then break apart into um, three heliums. Um, and those three heliums are, they're very high energy, but they're not, uh, a helium nucleus on its own is not dangerous. Whereas deuterium tritium lets off this 14.1 MeV um, neutron. And neutron is just, you know, that's the, that's the dangerous radiation in, you know, in atomic bombs and in nuclear reactors and all that stuff. So as few neutrons as we can get, the better. The other downside about that, the only energy, way to get the energy from that neutron is to slow it down in a bunch of material, usually water, um, and let that thing get hot and then pump that through a turbine and spin a thing, and that's how you get power. So the end result is still spinning a turbine. Yeah, in, for, for neutronic fusion, yeah. For right. a neutronic fusion, when you're creating 
you know, 99% of your energy as high energy helium nuclei, which are charged, they have a charge of plus two, um, and they're moving at around three MeV, um, probably more than that. There's some question about how what the energy is distributed between the three of them. Uh, but they, uh, moving charges on, it, on its own is electricity. So all you really do is you build, since this is a spherical reactor, you build a spherical shell around it, and you charge that, charge that positively, and it has the helium nuclei impact on that, that positively charged shell, they, inter they do what's called, what physicists would call an electromotive force, but essentially they induce a current in that shell. And you can just put your load mm. right there and you right. get electricity. So no, no spinning turbines, no yeah. intermediary. And does the shell break down quickly? Oh, and if you do it right now. So the, the mm. trick is to make a shell that's not like a solid thing. You make it actually like a, like a perforated thing with all these holes. So like the ones that are faster can just go right through the middle and then curve out and hit the back of it. And the ones that are slower will hit the front of it. So the trick is you slow them down to almost exactly their energy. So they come nearly to a stop by the time they hit it. Mm. But they're transferring energy through the electromotive force um, into the conductor. Um, so, right. you, so in a perfect system with the perfectly monogenic ions, you could have 100% efficiency. You would have no heating at all. But that's, you know, our efficiency we looked at when we modeled them in like 85 to 90%. Right. Um, so you still get a lot of heat, you know, for a 300 megawatt reactor, you're still going to be reducing, you know, 10 megawatts of waste heat. Um, but that's a small, small amount compared to other things. And then once, once you get this, this uh, process happening, how much maintenance does it take? How do you get fuel into it? Mm -hmm. So these are all, yeah, those are all the, sort of the hard engineering questions. Um, mm -hmm. Fuel, for the most part, um, the hydrogen, hydrogen gas, um, you just sort of inject a little puff jet of hydrogen gas. Mm -hmm. And the, the, um, the electrons at the edge of the plasma are hot enough that they sort of pretty much instantly ionize the hydrogen gas in a large reactor. One of the problems we struggle with the small ones is the small ones just aren't quite big enough, and a lot of the gas bounces around, and we end up with, you know, sort of stray gas, and then we've got to pump that all out. You're still going to have to pump it out in a big one, but in a big one it's easier just because the mean free path for the um, ions is lower. Um, and getting the boron in there is is a, another big issue because boron has a lot more electrons to pull off. So it often requires multiple ionization events um, in order to become fully ionized. Um, so, I mean, the, the simplest way is to use a borane, uh, a gas like, you know, um, H4B2 or something like that, which is essentially hydrogen and boron um, bound together, and you just sort of puff that in the same way. Um, but we've also been experimenting with uh, solid boron. Um, essentially, not really much more than an arc welder that just sort of like creates a little discharge and some free ions and then use some sort of force to propel them into the edge of the plasma. Do you dream about physics? Yeah, yeah. Well, I dream about a lot of things, but physics comes I up. don't want to hear the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Random gases. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I almost made a Mexican food joke when you were talking about <laughs> pumping out random gases. Um, I guess I just did. Yeah. Damn. Did. Damn. Uh, yeah. No, I was just wondering. I was driving up here yesterday. I was listening to uh, Radio Lab. You ever listen to that? I have a couple times. Yeah. Great. They, I love the the subject, uh, the material that they cover in that show, but I hate the way they produce it with all their cutesy little bullshit. Mm scripted conversations that they're pretending are spontaneous. Mm -hmm. I, I hate fake spontaneity. That mm -hmm. I find that really offensive. I, I don't I know can why. That, yeah. I, I get real riled up about that. This is real spontaneity, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Unscripted. Um, anyway, so they were talking about uh, some scientist who you would know, but I forget his name, 
who dreamt of a snake eating his his own tail. Oh, Ouroboros? Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. when he realized that some molecule was a ring shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that was the, the boranes or whatever. Not the boranes, the benzene. Benzene, that's what yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. And and that made me think, you know, like I dream about stuff I'm working on. You know, I write about prehistory a lot. So I, I have a lot of dreams involving Raquel Welsh wearing bloody <laughs> skins. Uh, but, you know, you're spending so much time in this world that you have to be able to visualize very clearly mm-hmm. that doesn't exist in a, I mean, it does exist, but not on a dimension that you can see it through your mm-hmm. eyes, right? Yeah. So I imagine that your your dream life must be very rich with that because your brain needs to be integrating all this information in sort of translating it into individuals mm-hmm. in, in some sense so that you can manipulate it subconsciously. Um, that, that must be very interesting to do, be, you know, to be visualizing something that isn't really visual. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that when I do have dreams about the physics, it's rarely, it's like I'm, I'm not like seeing protons bounce off protons and things like that. I more imagine, contextualize it as like, often I'll imagine like sitting in my lab but knowing something that I didn't know before. Ah. And the, so then you wake up and you, it's like, like, oh yeah, I knew how to, I knew how to overcome the, you know, the electron upscatter issue in my dream. I knew how to overcome that. And then and there's been times where I sort of reconstructed like, okay, I did have an idea how to do that. Sometimes you're just dreaming that you know something, but you don't actually know something. A lot of ways it's like dreaming you can fly. Right. You have no conception of how you actually did it. It just, <laughs> you know, you just start doing it. Right. Right. Um, so yeah. often it's like, you know, you dream like, oh yeah, I finally got that vacuum pump working. And but that does give you motivation to get there to go there the next day and get the vacuum pump. Right. Right. And it gives you some insight into the doors that will open if and when you figure that thing out. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, here's how I would fly if I could. Exactly. You know? exactly. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Uh, another strange thing I read and this might be bullshit. You, you may know um, the God particle. What is that? The, That's the Higgs. Yeah. The Higgs boson. Right. Mm-hmm. So I read somewhere that uh, the guy who finally – the word discover bothers me in this context. But the guy who isolated it or described mm-hmm. it first or whatever, I don't remember his name. But um, he was being interviewed by someone early on and uh, right after the, the discovery had been publicized. And the, the journalist said to him, you know, how long have you been – looking for this particle and he said i've been looking for this goddamn thing my whole life mm-hmm. uh, or this goddamn particle my whole life and so in the article it was published the quote was i've been looking for this god dash particle my whole life <laughs> he never called it the god particle and so it, it turned into the god particle because we live in this silly ass religious mm-hmm. country where you know you can't everything has something to do with god and jesus and apple pie and the flag and the scientist in, in who did this was the opposite. He wasn't some Christian saying, "Yeah, this you know this proves the existence of God because now there's a goddamn you know." Yeah, my understanding is had as you say, I'm not familiar with that particular story, but as it's no particular context with God, it, it became to be referred to as the God particle in scientific literature on occasion, almost jokingly because everything came down to the Higgs. Right. You know, it's, it's like of, the the elemental. Yeah, it's yeah. like every time you were trying to calculate something, there'd be this little value that was like, and then that's the Higgs field. 
And we think we know what that is, but we haven't actually measured it, so it's probably this. And so when something pops up all the time, you know, but it's sort of, there is this tendency in scientific journal, journalism to try to make things seem important. Right. Um, and so that's for, like, a great example in the fusion field is the big fusion reactor in France, the ITER, um, for uh, International Toroidal European Reactor, um, or Reactor Experiment. It's in French. Um, they, they, that was originally just an acronym, but it also happens to share the same spelling for Latin for, um, I believe it's pronounced ITER, which is the way. Uh-huh. And then they started, you know, talking about how it's the way to fusion, and that showed up in all of their documentation. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, I guarantee most of the scientists working on it don't give a damn either way. But yeah. it definitely comes off as sort of <laughs> kind of a patronizing to everybody else. You know? Yeah. Well, science journalists, uh, I think, are always looking for that kind of hook, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I often rant about the the idea that people only live to be 30 or 35 in prehistory, which mm-hmm. is the widely believed, but completely inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And that's another example of the scientists, uh, understanding the archeologists who, who work with, uh, you know, the, the digs dig up skeletons. And when they are aging the skeleton, not how old the skeleton is, you know, with carbon 14 or all that, but how old the person was at the mm-hmm. time of death, the main way they do that is through um, dental eruption, right? right? Uh, the wisdom teeth essentially coming out. And wisdom teeth are pretty much done by 35. Mm-hmm. So when they've got you know smaller skeletons, they age them in terms of how big the skeleton is. But with the adult-sized skeletons, they use the, the dental eruption. Mm-hmm. And so they, they will be, it'll say 20, uh, 25, 30, 35 plus. Mm-hmm. 35 plus, meaning at least 35. Could be 65, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) But then the science journalists get that, and they look at the report, and they say, look at that. Nobody was over 35. Wow. So everyone died when they were 35. We've doubled the human lifespan. Isn't science wonderful? Oh, we're so lucky to be alive today. It's all bullshit. But, you know, and I think this this gets into what you're talking about as well. There's something, there's some self-congratulatory satisfaction that people take from how aren't we so clever mm-hmm. you know and that uh, that propagates this misinformation now talking about this thing in europe uh i don't know if it's the french one or the swiss one it's way behind schedule like it was supposed to open five years ago and they keep mm-hmm. like a guy dropped his wrench and someone else dropped a sandwich and there, there was all all these weird um Sort of like the opposite of what we're saying, the self-aggrandizing thing. There were these weird, uh, like, silly uh, mistakes or or coincidences that had some people thinking, like, oh, this is the universe telling us not to do this, right? Because it's going to open up a black hole and we're all going to die. Yeah, that was the Large Hadron Collider, I believe. Uh, Um, Yeah, there was the, it was a baguette even. A baguette. That fell into (laughs) a power, you know, some sort of. Power distribution thing, and right? It cost billions of dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but exactly. so, I mean, those things happen. Yeah, I and mean, people yeah. are always looking for, you know, meaning. Yeah, and there's meaning there, but it's the question is, I think people might not necessarily look at what the right level of meaning. You right, know, the meaning is don't take your fucking baguette into the. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I'm sure yeah. there's a rule against, but you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. Okay, so um, now we can't talk about fusion without talking about uh, room temperature, cold fusion, this mm-hmm. big thing, Fleischmann, and, and some ponds and Fleischmann, ponds and Fleischmann right? Mm-hmm. Now, 
again, like back of the envelope uh, recapitulation of what I think or what I've heard happen. They claimed that they had created fusion in essentially in a glass of water on a tabletop. Even for all intents and purposes. Right. Yeah. And that it had been replicated, and then they got all this attention, mm-hmm. and then nobody else could replicate it, and they were humiliated and, and drummed out of academia. But then I just read recently that someone had replicated it 15, 20 years later. Is, what's, what's up there? Is that accurate, first of all? So, yeah, I mean, there, there's... The question wasn't so much like oh, they claimed like some massive gain, and they, it was more that their methods for for collecting the data were questioned. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's it was such a small amount of um, essentially their their proof that they had done fusion was you know um, helium, a little bit of helium and uh, heat, anomalous heat or whatever. And I must admit it's not something I'm particularly familiar with, but um, essentially you know the, the the argument was that it wasn't properly calibrated and everything right now the field of low energy nuclear reactions which is the field of essentially nuclear reactions happening inside a metal continues to be studied with varying levels of credibility there's some real you know scamsters out there and then there's some people doing some legitimate work and they do suffer from this stigma against them that cold fusion oh it must be nothing so i do sometimes wonder that if there actually was something there we would get anywhere because nobody would listen to them anyways. Right. Um, but my, my belief is that Pons and Feischmann, um, there's pro- there is, the physics say that there, there's, there is always a probability of um, a fusion event to occur. It should be infinitesimally low at room temperature. So it happens randomly in the universe? Yeah. I mean, everything's just a probability distribution. Right. Know, quantum mechanics says that anything can tunnel anywhere eventually, given a long enough... Time well, that's time. like a you know, thousand monkeys are going to type Shakespeare. If you, exactly. Yeah. So you put two protons next to each other at you know, 0.1 EV, and eventually they will hit each other and do something. Mm. You know? um, so the, the theory is, goes that there's these you know, surface waves on metals called plasmons um, that have their own energy associated with them, and somehow that energy should be able to overcome the Coulomb barrier between them or something like that, um, which... And a basic physics standpoint has some validity, but the rate that should occur is, is infinitesimally low compared to what people have, some people have claimed to measure. So I don't know whether that's um, whether there's actually some sort of anomalous effect there. Um, I feel most things like that require would would dictate some study, but there's been enough fraud around it that it becomes dangerous to um, you know, give people money for that because it's you know difficult to know whether they're actually going to research it or if they're just going to go you know right yeah and there are so few people who are qualified to uh to assess whether or not Mm -hmm. it's real yeah it's such a small effect you need extremely precise equipment and you need really careful replication and all these things because you know if you're trying to measure like nanowatts of power you you could be getting that much from a radio signal you know depositing energy into your sample have have any of these uh experiments been done or is there reason for them to be done in orbit in other words, is the gravitational effect of being or the atmospheric effects of being on the surface of the Earth, does that corrupt or complicate what you're trying to do? Um, I mean, I'm sure to some extent. I mean, one of the basic drift instabilities is caused by the fact that, well, you know, p- particles do have mass, so they do right. tend to go down. But the magnetic field of the Earth, if you're doing really, really small electrical measurements, would have some 
effect. Um, truth is, though, that in orbit, you have a lot less atmosphere between you and all the crap streaming in from the universe. So it would actually be probably harder to do in orbit just because, you know, there's cosmic rays streaming through everything up there, whereas our atmosphere mm. shoulders a lot of that stuff out. On the mm. contrary, if I was going to try to do something like that, I'd do it deep in a salt mine or something like that. Mm. And I think I do vaguely recall something out of Brigham Young University then doing some research into that by essentially just letting a metal, a metal sit in a mine and like watching its isotopic composition over time um, to try to see if there was these low energy um, nuclear reactions. Um, I don't recall what the outcome of that was. Hmm. Um, Can any of the materials that, that are used in, in nuclear fusion be weaponized? Yeah, so um, it kind of depends on what type of fusion you're talking about. So like that 14 MeV uh, neutron that comes out of deuterium tritium is too fast to to be able to enrich uranium with. Mm -hmm. You want, you know, low-energy thermal neutrons in order to do that. So theoretically, you could use a moderator, but that would probably have to be... You'd have to use a highly enriched uranium moderator to create that. So there is always a, what they say, proliferation risk with these sort of things. Um, that theoretically, you could use neutrons to, to breed or, or um, you know, to, to breed uh, nuclear weapon material. Um, one of the other reasons we're interested in neutronics is there's no... Uh, there's no proliferation risk. Right. In fact, if you designed an aneutronic reactor, you would have so little... The amount of shielding you'd need in an aneutronic reactor, if you put a neutronic fuel in it, it would just burn out the reactor, it would destroy the coils from radiation bombardment before you could enrich any material. Right. So it's sort of innately safer that way in a lot of ways. Now, but there is nuclear fusion involved in the atom bomb, right? Like the trigger is in fusion? In the hydrogen bomb. Hydrogen yeah. bomb. Yeah. Um, I think, that, you know, I always found the the history of the atomic bomb fascinating and but most people kind of stop at the you know at nagasaki and hiroshima right um, past then is even more fascinating you know the first hydrogen bomb in the you know the 50s um they just took a giant tank of deuterium and, and tritium put a nuclear bomb on one side of it and detonated it and the bomb was hot enough to start a fusion chain reaction in that giant tank of fuel um, that was what the first hydrogen bomb was you know off on the uh, in the south pacific island you know the thing was the size of a building um, and, you know, after that, they figured out how to use it with, like, dry... Uh, the bomb itself was the size of a building? Yeah. Uh, so it was... It didn't... They didn't drop it from something. It was... Yeah, it was just a giant tank of... You it's know, just blow the shit out of this paradisical island. Yeah. yeah. Well, the fascinating thing is, is that they, in order to measure that, they've actually built this, like, two-mile-long um, covered building in order to, like, watch as the blast wave came down it across two islands in the South Pacific. Like, they had to build up a, underneath it, and then they... All that got decimated, but it existed for you know like a quarter of a second or whatever, and that's they got all the information they needed as that building was being blown up down this paradise uh, thing. Yeah, aren't we a great great species? Look yeah. at these clever monkeys. What is the first thing they do? Blow up fucking paradise. Yeah, right. So I mean, I think that's part of the part of the image issue with with fusion is that the first time humanity was really able to do fusion in any large amount was essentially brute force just detonate an atomic bomb right next to it and that'll be hot enough to kick off fusion and it did and it did yeah and so so it just burned it just fused until it ran out of material essentially until yeah until like all atomic bombs essentially let off energy until it kind of blew itself far enough apart that it was too far to continue doing Uh, the reaction oh i see yeah right and then did that research continue or did they just sort of check that box and move on to other stuff Oh, yeah. So, I mean, once they figured out that they could do it with liquid, they figured out that they could do it with solids. And then, so your average hydrogen bomb now today is basically just this, like, solid. I believe it's essentially styrofoam mixed with uh, 
uh, with you know hydrogen isotopes in it is what the fuel is. Styrofoam, paradoxically, is very good at holding in a nuclear blast for very small fractions of a second. So, <laughs> a nuclear blast in a to-go cup. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. And there's something called a Teller-Ulam convention, which is kind of like a nuclear spark plug. That's what kind of starts it off. And it is just kind of like a piston made of this styrofoam stuff full of hydrogen isotopes with a little atomic core in the middle of it. You know, I, I w- it wouldn't surprise me at all if the world ended in styrofoam. <laughs> I, I, One way or the it's other. an evil, evil substance. I used to work for this millionaire when I was in New York and... Uh, one day he was he and I were talking about he was seventy five or something and he was talking about some of the great investment opportunities that he'd missed in his day, and he told me about one day a guy came into his office looking for some startup capital, um, and he had this idea for these uh, these cups, these you know styrofoam <laughs> cups that people you know, like it he, it holds the heat it holds the cool it's like it's its own insulation and you can form these cups, <laughs> and he was like yeah get out of my office you're full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then he looked at that like, you know, what a lost opportunity. And I looked at that like, God, I'd be so ashamed to have funded the, you know, the proliferation of styrofoam throughout the fucking planet. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, that came from a time when our concern was to make something that lasted long enough. And, you know, and nowadays it's a problem that it lasts too long. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting problem to have. Good, good historically, point. Yeah. if you think about it, you know, things always wore out. And now we're afraid that they, it doesn't wear out. It doesn't go yeah. away. Yeah. You know. Plastics. And it's even like even funny how plastics uh, have, you know, like there's low quality plastic now, mm-hmm. you know, and you look at something from the 50s or 70s or whatever. And it's like, wow, that's good plastic. Yeah. That's back when they made quality bullshit. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you're you're young. I don't know how old you are. You what are you, 30? I'm 30. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. OK. You're a nuclear physicist, but I could guess your age. Um, you see yourself doing this long term? You you want to like get into you know styrofoam cup production or what's what's your future? Well, so I mean, I got into this from a young age. Yeah, I, I built uh, my first little fusor thing, um, which is the simple version of an IEC um, in high school. In sort of so in high school, you're building a nuclear fusion. Uh, device yeah and you know actually you're a fucking nerd aren't you oh yeah you're you're ultra nerd just play video games all day and (laughs) read sci-fi push my glasses occasionally yeah it works out all right (laughs) i mean i'm married well actually well being well you got that covered but uh being a nerd you're lucky when i was a kid being a nerd was still like you know low low totem pole stuff Mm -hmm. But probably by the time you were in high school, being a nerd was kind of cool. Steve Jobs was famous. and I think I was kind of right on the edge of that. It was getting there. It didn't start out that way early on. Right. I was kind of the wrong kind of nerd, though. Oh. I, I'm the, the pure science nerds are not as common as like, computer nerds nowadays. Right. Um, right. And I think that's just because computers are accessible. They're easy. You can get all your intellectual curiosity out right. you know, very, very quickly. Whereas if you want to build a fusion reactor, you've got to do some scrounging and building. You've got to know how to weld and you know, all this sort of stuff. Right. So it's not as accessible. So I think the computers do draw away a lot of what would be in previous, in previous uh, you know, decades sort of pure science talent. Not that it's a bad thing because computers obviously need a lot of work. And I've worked as a software developer in my life too, so I can't mm. complain about that. Um, but, yeah, I think I was kind of right on the, the edge of that. Um, I always did science just because it was fascinating. You know, there's nothing quite like blowing all the fuses in the house when you try to, you know, make plasma in the microwave. Um, <laughs> Were your parents cool about that? Or? Well, my mother was very understanding. My father was very much an enabler. 
Um, my parents were divorced when I was, by the time I was, um, you know, a teenager and doing most of this stuff. Uh-huh. But my father would bring me home, like, oh, look, I found this giant capacitor, you know, I found, uh. you know, this roll of Teflon, I found, you know. And you're living with your mom. I'm living with my oh, mom. Oh, she must time. have loved that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Great. So, you know, it, it definitely fostered my... Um, my curiosity about everything. And I got to experiment with this, this stuff, which was great. Um, and I just sort of, you know, I went to college for physics and math and did all that sort of stuff. And then uh, I was lucky enough, and this is where the rare thing is, lucky enough, you know, sort of in my senior year of college to attract some people that were as interested as I was and start building a company around it. Um, and that's, you know, why I get to do this today and have a lab space, albeit in a little storage unit. Um, well, I guess it's a little more than little. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, essentially I do it cause I like it. Yeah. And you, when you find other people that are as excited about it as you are, being can provide you with some funding to do it, then that's what you do. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I spend 75% of my time doing science and 25% of my time, um, you know, begging for money. Right. But, uh, <laughs> that's not a bad ratio. It's not a bad ratio. As long as you can keep it from, from flipping on you. Yeah. You'll be all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. And and now the the reason people are willing to invest money in this, uh, now are they just fascinated by the science? Are they Star Trek geeks like you? Or is there a commercial application that, that well, they see? Yeah, so there's certainly commercial applications. Um, one of the really nice things about IECs over like tokamaks is that there are applications in the near term. And we're pretty concentrated on um, radioisotope generation for medical um, processes, um, as well as uh, neutron production for um, uh, diagnostics, like essentially searching for um, highly enriched uranium samples, um, like searching for uh, cracks, micro cracks in concrete and metal, all these sort of things. So sort of diagnostic applications. Mm. And these are sort of applications that are really only a few years away. Of course, we said that a few years ago, but our our investments have been smaller than we expected, so it's taken some time. Um, But there's actually a business model, whereas between here and a fully realized reactor, and that's really nice because everything that we do on the small-scale ones, all the physics translates directly to the big ones. So, you know, start selling these radioisotope generators, then we can, uh, you know, everything we learn about those will help us build a power reactor down the line. Right. Um, but the, that said, the majority of the people who have invested or shown interest in investing are save-the-world kind of people. Right. You know, they see this is like, this can get us off coal, this can get us off, you know, all this stuff. Simply because the power production cost is theoretically so low. Because, you know, borons in seawater also covers, like, most of Utah is covered in borax, um, you know. And so it's it's cheap, it's available, there's very little waste products. Um, and so it is just sort of one of those holy grail, save the world kind of things. I think that yeah. I think that people are, most of the people that have been really involved um, and really gung-ho about it have been those people, those sort of save the world kind of people. Now, assuming that, that this technology... You work out the the problems, the issues that are the blockages that you're facing now. Um, is this a uh, is it a centralized thing where you've got like regional plants that are producing huge amounts of electricity, or is it decentralized, small plants, maybe neighborhood or even household? Yeah. So um, there's there's a lower limit to what size tends to work, and there's but there's a kind of a question mark by that. You know, like plus or minus fifty percent. Um, I personally am of the opinion that anything below about 100 megawatts is probably going to be difficult. And how many houses are powered by 100 megawatts? So, I mean, 100 megawatts is like, what's, well, see, 1,000 megawatts is about enough for, what's that, 300,000 homes or something like that. So um, so the city of Bellingham that we're in now, um, 
consumes about 300 megawatts. Oh, okay. So, you know, including all the marijuana grow grow. Well, it might have gone up since then. Yeah. A lot of those are solar powered. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, I think the definitely not like the giant monolithic, you know, like Hanford nuclear site produces multiple tens of gigawatts. No, right. Nothing like that. We're talking I would love to get a functional 100 megawatt electrical working because those are small city, small town even sort of size. Right. And I think that many of those decentralized, and because the fuel is so compact, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can put all the fuel you need for a decade into into a train car for your 100 megawatt plant. So um, there'd be a lot lower uh, maintenance uptake, up you know, upkeep. So you can plop one of these things down pretty much anywhere. That's the goal eventually. Um, in fact, making them bigger than about a gigawatt, you, you kind of need multiple cores just because the ion flux on the outer system, outer walls becomes kind of high, and then you got sort of material problems with, you know, you can't hold, handle that much heat at one time kind of thing. Right. And how big would a core be for 100 megawatt? Um, so the, the, the important thing from as an engineering standpoint is the we call it the confinement radius, which is sort of the size of that the, the cage that holds everything in. Yeah. And you're talking two to three meters um, yeah. in radius on that. And probably double that for you know vacuum, um, you know vacuum shell and data and collectors and everything. So I mean, really, um, the room we're sitting in now could fit most of the big equipment. You know, this is a 1,500 square foot space. I could fit the main core. Um, mm, that's uh, amazing. So you could you could essentially get something into a like a, a container, a truck container. Yeah, um, I, the radius as it currently right stands would probably not quite fit in a. Uh, in a you know standard shipping container, it'd be slightly too wide. I must admit that's something that's been in my head for years now. I kind of want the you know have it fit in two or three containers and kind of stack them next to each other yeah. and clip them together. That would be amazing. You have a, an earthquake somewhere, you can you know ship something in there and be generating electricity you know a few days later. That yeah, definitely. I mean, you still have power grid problems and all that, but uh, being able to pump clean water and and mm-hmm. Light that would be pretty well, and that's important. a particularly interesting application because, as I mentioned, um, boron is in seawater, mm-hmm. so you can make a very sustainable system that pumps in seawater, desalinates it, gets its own fuel out of the seawater as it's desalinating it, using the energy that it's already producing. Yeah. Right? You just have like a, a startup, you yeah, know, like yeah, sourdough you just, bread or something, yeah, exactly. And that, that's actually one of the biggest um, sort of question marks for how you can make something you could ship somewhere. It's because they do require a pretty, a fairly large investment of energy to kind of like. You know, start them up, like kickstart them. Right. So you you might need a diesel generator or something to right. you know get them going, or supercapacitors maybe. Um, and what about maintenance? Is it something you'd have to break it down every few years and clean and recalibrate and adjust things? So that really depends on how well we can work out the surface materials. One of the yeah. biggest issues is there's all these ions flying around, and most of them we're capturing at low energy by the time they hit the grid, but some of them hit the confinement uh, confinement cage and all that. And they knock off little pits of probably be tungsten. So this little microscopic tungsten dust would stick to everything in there. And mm. So there's a lot of engineering that still needs to be done to figure out how fast this stuff comes off, what it sticks to, how often it needs to be cleaned out. And so if the correct materials are made are discovered, um, there's no f- engineering reason why it couldn't just run pretty much forever. Mm. Um, but if we can't make coil containers that are strong enough to not just like I mean, I think my worst-case scenario was like a centimeter a week of erosion for a 300-megawatt plant. Yeah. That's worst-case scenario. Um, so at that point, yeah, you probably have to change them out every few months, even if you made them super thick. And then you'd have all this tungsten dust that you'd have to capture. And, yeah. You know, um, but, you know, there, there's other 
other other side of that, you know, you might be able to run it for five years before you have to change out the little um, the coil heads. Right. So um, yeah, there's a lot of materials is very important to this. Um, but luckily, there's lots of smart people already working on similar pro- you know materials that would have application to this for similar problems in other fields. Right. So now you, you mentioned that what was it Toka Tokamax Tokamax. Is there a lot of like crossover applicability of this technology? Are they, are, in other words, are they having the same materials issues? Yeah, Stokamax have a very similar materials issue simply because they um, they directly vent their plasma into what's called a diverter, um, and it's got a, it actually is in contact in, towards the bottom of the ring um, to extract the ash products. Um, luckily, our ash products tend to just sort of pop out because our plasma is in not. But there's a difference between burning plasma and ignited plasma. Our, our plasma is intended to be burning, i.e. stuff interacts in it and then comes out. But we don't have any need to subsequently keep that heat in. Any heat that's produced through reactions, we let back out, collect, turn back into electricity, and then put back in. Whereas a tokamak is supposed to be ignited, which it, it's just sort of like a charcoal briquette. It's sort of producing its own heat to keep its own burning going. And so they, they have to get the ash out at a very controlled rate. Hmm. Um, so these diverter plates, um, I, I believe the eater is using some sort of specialized form of graphite, um, but I've heard talk of um, liquid lithium walls and all this other complicated stuff to make that work, uh, just because the heat load is so large. But everything being equal, a tokamak is going to be a lot higher energy than this similar uh, magnetic IEC system, so a lot of the energy constraints are higher. That said, um, they are definitely doing a lot of materials research that benefits us as well. Wow. So. And is that publicly available? For the most part, yeah. Really? That's yeah. cool. And, yeah. and is there any defense funding in this area? It seems like there probably wouldn't be. Like, I mean, so one of the, well, you'd love to run a, uh, uh aircraft carrier on this. Yeah, right? and certainly the U.S. Navy was very interested in this technology from the, I think it was the, didn't they actually pick it up until the early 90s? Early 90s through the mid-2000s, and then again very recently um, uh, under Dr. Dr. Bessard, who was the sort of inventor of this category, and then later under Dr. Park, mm. um, the Navy funded this for some time. Their funding lapsed a number of times, and most recently lapsed um, just to, I believe, last year, um, mm. and they hadn't received any further funding. Um, a lot of that is because there's so, some sort of, um, and I could say this not having working for any sort of government body, um, the DOE has the charter, the Department of Energy, to work on fusion. And they get kind of upset if any other government agencies start working on it. Really? So, you know, when the Navy starts working on fusion, the DOE says, hey, that's our deal. And the DOE, you know, they have this, they've been putting all the fusion energy towards the NIF, the, new, uh, the uh, National Ignition Facility, the laser-based fusion thing, um, which failed and did not achieve ignition, even though that it was its job. Um, and it's generally been considered kind of a big you know, boondoggle. Yeah, big boondoggle. <laughs> yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the yeah. DOE was putting the majority of their fusion funding towards that. Is that the one in Texas? I believe that one is in California. Yeah. There was some huge particle accelerator type thing they were going to build in Texas. Oh, yeah, that was the uh, superconducting super collider. Yeah. That was going to be the, something the size of the Large Hadron Collider in Texas was going to be done by the mid 90s, but they never. Um, never finished it. Never happened. Uh, but they started it? Yeah, they broke ground, and then, like, I don't remember if it was a few months or a few years later, it got canceled. It was essentially one of those, like, you know, the previous president says, hey, let's do this, and the next president's like, yeah, okay, let's not do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think about this uh, from a science point of view, right? You're, 
you've got these multi-billion dollar projects going on, uh, Switzerland, France, you know, uh, you mentioned the boondoggle here in the United States, of which I'm sure there are many. And yet here you are uh, doing essentially a lot of the same science, possibly, or, or from your perspective, probably uh, with um, application, commercial application within a few years in a, in a small, humble facility in a warehouse in Bellingham. Mm-hmm. What's going on with these billions of dollars? Is, is that poorly invested? Should, should they be funding a bunch of guys like you instead? You know, one or two or three of whom are going to have these amazing breakthroughs. You know what I mean? In other words, should should do you think research seeds should be just cast far and wide and see what sprouts, or do you think that uh, this highly focused, highly um, invested research is a smart way to go? Well, I'm serious. I can see both sides of that because obviously, from my perspective, I'd like more funding. You know, um, but I do understand also that. I'm just as likely to fail as anyone else. Um, so if the government were to suddenly show up and give me $100 billion and say we need this in five years, I don't think I have a better chance than anybody else Right. Um, you know, in the whole scheme of things. Um, that said, um, I think the, the issue is um, agility, technological agility. When something starts to be shown not to work, it's important to be able to shift attention and direction. Mm. Um, you know, if you want to talk about the Manhattan Project, there's a, that was exi- there's a many examples of technological agility in that while still having staying power. Because the problem with lacking staying power is um, fusion in the U.S., there, there's this thing that everybody says, fusion's always 10 years away or 20 years away or 30 years away. And that's essentially based on this this study, led out in the, I, can't believe, I can't remember if it was 73 or 77, where they essentially laid out how many years it would take to reach break-even with this level of funding, with this level of funding, and this level of funding. And with the highest level of funding, they said 10 to 20 years. And then with the middle level of funding, they said 30 years. And with the lower level of funding, they said pretty much never. We'll continue to do interesting things. We'll continue to learn stuff. But chances are we won't ever actually achieve fusion. And it's that level that the, that the U.S. fusion spending has been at since then. So is that because at that level you can do interesting theoretical work up to a point where you need to invest a lot of money in building a device that you just can't build without that money to, to take yeah, to the some next extent. step? I mean, a lot of it is that like – so like the Eater is a great example. This thing's tossing tens of billions of dollars. Um, and it, that needs to be done because that's the only way to, to really, in the end, find out whether a tokamak is viable or not. Uh. And – the technologically, we could have started building a tokamak of that size in the 80s, but it's because the funding has been so low. There's all these been all these intermediate devices. They've been very very careful in order not to fail between now and then. You know, the Joint European Taurus, the Jet in Colum, um, they got to like nearly nearly to break even like it's like more than a decade ago, um, like a decade and a half ago almost. But that machine was not as big as they wanted it to be, and you know, and they had to be careful not to destroy the machine while running it, and all these things. So the problem has been that the funding's never been really high enough to just to do the Manhattan Project thing and just say like, I don't care what it costs, do it. And so Fusion has been limping along, and even the ones that have been high, more highly funded, like the Tokamaks and the Stellarators, um, have never had enough to just go for it and find out whether it works or not. So I mean, if I was in charge of policy. Obviously, you want to throw money at the ones that are the most promising. And those, for the most part, are the ones that are the most funded now. Um, But but you have to have the um, 
agility to know that like, okay, so right now one of the big problems with tokenomics is um, edge localized modes, ELMs. They're essentially these long period um, destructive um, oscillations um, that release a lot of energy and the plasma cools down and it's bad. And uh, we don't know exactly what sets them off with what frequency. Um, and there's models, and the, some of the smaller devices cause them. But pretty much when they build the ITER, if ELMs happen every 15 seconds, it works. If they happen every five seconds, it doesn't. You know, And that's, that's just a question that needs to be answered. So the thing what I guarantee will happen is if ELMs are a problem, people will stop working on Tokamaks for the most part. Or they'll try to find some other way around. They'll fight for you know, Spiromax or something like that. But there won't be this sit down and really look and see how big the problem is. What should we? What should we do? Which other technology should we look at? And that's what I think has been lacking. You know, when in when the 80s, when funding finally dried up, and they said, "Okay, we can't afford these mirror experiments anymore," they just stopped doing mirror stuff. In fact, mirror stuff disappeared so much that it's even difficult to like find a lot of the research online nowadays mm. to like learn about how magnetic mirrors worked they're just and the people who worked on it went into other fields and magnetic mirrors yeah wow mirrors versus continuous fields that's a magnetic mirrors of another type of open field line configuration right. similar to the one we're working on um so you know i think that it is really it's very important to fund these small esoteric projects like my own to sort of have something to come back to um in case something else doesn't work um, because you never know which one's just going to work. You know, if I, if we continue to work this, and next year we reach the the triple product density we expect to, um, then that puts us ahead of some of these massive national labs. Thing is, is I can't guarantee that's going to happen. Right. Um, that's just what all our computer models and our previous experimental data extrapolate to. Do you worry all, at all about um, security? You know, I'll be honest. We were much more concerned about security when we started. Um, you know, some years ago. It now, the phrase I say a lot is, we wish we had that problem. You wish you had Chinese agents, like, snooping at the garage door here? No, well, we wish we were important enough for that to be a problem. <laughs> you know, it's right. like we always talk about, like, you know, people, like, are you worried about some outside investor coming in and buying you out and taking you over? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. we, we wish we had that yeah, problem. Yeah. You know, um, for the most part, we're just sort of humble and pl- plugging along and getting stuff right. done. And, you know, the small amount of recognition we do get, you know, doesn't really tend to amount to much. Um, so. But you... You know, if you're developing this, these technologies that could, within a few years, put you in, as you said, ahead of some of the, the national research facilities in, in certain elements of the science, couldn't someone hack into your computers and steal that research? Oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, there's an aspect of the hiding in the plain sight thing. You know, like a national lab has a, has a giant, you know, computer system with 30 levels of encryption and you know the big file is like master data file don't steal and a lot of my data is <laughs> on a flash drive right you know um, so to some extent it's it would be easier to steal from me because all you'd have to do is you know pickpocket me while i'm going to the gym or something but on the other hand if you you know it's just it's just on a flash drive somewhere right um so yeah 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 it's interesting stuff um is there one other question that occurred to me You've got this plasma reaction happening on a very small scale. Does the behavior of the sun have any effect on that? Solar flares or solar storms or any of that stuff? Well, I mean, theoretically, the magnetic field would have a slight, you know, the Earth's magnetic field moves against the thing, but that right. would be a very, very small effect. Right. So um, there's no, like, you know, mother mother to child kind of uh, communication going on. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, the, the uh, tiny suns. Yeah. I mean, see, that's the interesting thing because the. 
the sun is a completely different type of fusion really than we can ever do on earth because it's gravitational confinement. What holds everything Mm. together is gravity. Um, when atomic hydrogen bombs are inertial confinement, essentially it gets hot so fast that stuff can't escape. Um, Uh. and we're doing inertial electrostatic confinement where the inertia alone isn't enough to hold stuff together. So we're applying this electrostatic field to hold it together long enough to do it. So it's sort of, you know, do sound waves affect this sort of thing? Like if you blasted sound waves from every direction, would that have any sort of effect? Well, sound is kind of a different meaning in plasma. There are what we call ion acoustic waves. Uh-huh. And those are very much yes, part of uh, how this works. Um, when one form has instabilities, um, essentially, you know, a sound, the thing kind of starts resonating and then it resonates wrong. It kind of, you know, it's like a tuning fork tearing itself apart. Theoretically, yeah. that can happen. Yeah. Um, but heating using waves is one, is one of our main areas of research, um, using a um, non-resonant current drive um, to, you know, to heat the, uh, the the electrons and subsequently the ions through a non-resonant um, acoustic wave. Mm. So. so you just blast, like, ACDC music <laughs> at it. Yeah, I mean, we, we so far we've just experimented with a 56 kilohertz. Uh, ZZ Top. I yeah. should have said ZZ Top. ACDC is going to confuse people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's an AC signal, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a nerd joke for you. Yeah. Um, is there anything that, that uh, we haven't covered or any obvious questions I haven't asked? Um, no, I mean, um, so, I mean, one thing I would mention is that since, you know, we're a small company and we're always uh, interested in, people's input and help and all that and uh you know so we you know have a have a website yeah what is the website um com, uh, convergence scientific.com or cons c-o-n-v-s-c-i.com um there's ways to get in contact us you know we've there's a there's such a small field often it's hard you know we go to the sort of yearly meetings about these things but uh um, you know, we're always interested in people willing to help out the lab or, you know, have equipment and, that they, you know, want to unload and things like that. Oh, and we've right. gotten a lot of help with, you know, most of our most of this equipment is NASA surplus or somebody, you know, knew somebody that didn't want it or got oh. it on eBay. Um, so, I mean, those little things help, you know. We, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. This, this is, you know, I was talking to a friend the other night. I, I spend a lot of time bitching and moaning about American society because I've lived in Spain so long and I'm back in the U.S. now and everything sort of bothers me and I you know, notice all the flaws because I'm both a native and an outsider in a way. Um, but I was talking with a friend the other night and I was recalling a conversation I had with uh, the Spanish guy years ago. We were talking about American society and he had been here a lot as a tourist traveling around. And, and I remember he said to me, Chris, the the best and the worst thing about your country is that you Americans have no sense of the ridiculous. And uh, what he meant by that was that Americans are uniquely undeterred by the prospect of failure, which is why you end up with you know amazing works of art and technological progress because somebody like you is like fuck it man i'm going for it Mm -hmm. and they go for it and lots of times it doesn't work out and you know the first time the second time but eventually it often does and that's why all this amazing stuff is generated in this society Mm -hmm. you know um and this is great this is a a real wonderful example of that you've got a bare bones operation here and you're doing cutting edge research it's Mm -hmm. fantastic 
Yeah, and I mean, you're correct about the ridiculous thing. You know, that giant power supply over there, the thing the size of a refrigerator, weighs in excess of a thousand pounds. Um, that was brought in in a uh, um, in an SUV, um, my father-in-law's SUV. Um, <laughs> we had like six guys just jamming in there. You know, we didn't have this this hoist yet at right. the time, and so it was just you know six guys and paid them in beer to help me lift it. You know, and, <laughs> I mean, that and, that is so fucking American. And the thing you know? goes down. Yeah, the thing goes down the freeway on its you know it's all low on its shocks and barely accelerate. <laughs> you know, there's been so many instances of. I mean, the the cooling tank used to have pickles in it. You know, because I got that thing for um, fifteen dollars because it used to be a pickle thing and wash it out, and it's a great. That yeah. carries all the cooling things. So I mean, that's yeah. you, got, you can't be afraid of being ridiculous. You know? So that's yeah. Well, and there, <laughs> you know, and and that's what's cool about nerds becoming cool these days. That there's a there's something. Um, well, I was reading another thing that seems unrelated, but I promise this is related. Uh, it, it was a study of um, which men women found attractive, and so what they did was they took. Uh, they got like 50 guys and they took pictures of all 50 guys wearing suits. Mm. Then the same guys wearing like a t-shirt and jeans. And then the same guys like wearing like just like ridic- ridiculous shit. Like they just got out of bed or, you know, a bathrobe and slipper or whatever, you know, just like not trying at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And what they found was that women rated these guys in terms of attractiveness um, you know, obviously the, they, they liked them better in the suit than in the T-shirt and jeans, right? Because that signified success or, you know, right. money or whatever. But many of the women rated the guy, and they're the same guys, right? So it's not that one guy's better looking than the other. It's all the same guys. But they rated the guys wearing, like, who gives a shit clothes higher than all. And the theory was that, that when women are, are judging these guys, they're like, okay, here's a guy who's losing, Here's a guy who's winning, and here's a guy who's so far above it all, he doesn't even play, yeah. you know? And there's something a lot of women really admire that. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that connect to this? Um, the nerd thing, right? Yeah. Like the, you know, the, the being in a position, both in terms of, you know, your, your self-confidence and also, um, you know, your ambition and your, your creativity – to take something that used to have pickles and turn it into, you know, a nuclear fusion experiment, that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. That's great. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this facility is, uh, despite the fact that you're doing some real cutting-edge research here, 10 or 20 grand can make a difference. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, you don't need millions of dollars uh, from a single investor to have an impact in what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we can do, you know, uh, 10 grand's a new vacuum chamber, you know, 20 grand's a, you know, power supply. Um, and each thing gets as close, you know, I'm, I'm building a power supply part by part right now, mm. um, for, you know, a few hundred, few thousand dollars. So and somebody out there who like has a radio shack that's shutting down and you've got a warehouse full of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that get stuff in touch. Works. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause we're not afraid to be ridiculous is what <laughs> should be our, uh, our call. Line. <laughs> that's um, your new slogan. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Devlin. Yeah. This was great. I, I hope it leads to uh, somebody sending you some vacuum chambers or whatever the hell you need. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. All right. You heard it. Send vet, send Devlin your vacuum chambers. Uh, get in touch if you have anything that might be helpful to uh, a guy who's building a nuclear fusion device, <clears throat> including money. 
I'm sure they're accepting money. So if there are any high-minded, uh, high-finance types out there who want to help out with that project, they would uh, be very happy to talk to you about it, I'm sure. Hey, this week, I'm going to, uh, instead of the wonderful Carsey Blanton, who I normally uh, turn to at the end of the podcast here, I'm going to play something special, a little tune called Zirconium Fire. This was sent in by a podcast listener by the name of Dwayne Hoover. You can find his music, his other music at uh, Dwayne, D-W-A-Y-N-E, Hoover, H-O-O-V-E-R, dot Bandcamp, dot com. Zirconium Fire. Hope you dig it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Catch you next week. Smash into each other like a super collider. Self-sustaining zirconium fire Chain reaction fury uncontrollable the motion Infinite fractals deep as an ocean Action potential in an excitable state As you throw open the floodgate fraction diffusion and the laws of motion You reach the boiling point, catalytic conversion Leap on the leptons at the part of the problem But ignoring the Masons Isabel and Hedro Where has your love gone? You created a black hole Now you're stuck on the horizon i
It's absolute zero on the tip of the teaspoon.